In what ways do you think that environmental sustainability in New Hampshire is tied to cultural sustainability as well? To me, they're one and the same. Indigenous culture and lifeways are directly tied to our environment and our environment protection and sustainability. Indigenous environmental awareness ensures research pres uh, resource preservation and ensures cultural uh, ensure, ensures the survival for the future generations. However, with the contemporary practices currently in effect, people don't seem to pay much attention until something is critically endangered or completely lost. As an example, let's focus on the materials used for the art of basketry. It's a subject near and dear to my heart. <laughs> One of the first stories that children learn is the creation story. In that story, it tells us how after a few tries, Creatus made us out of the ash tree. From that same ash tree, we were gifted the art of basketry. So since before the beginning of time, we have been taught that we are not just connected to the earth, but that she is our mother. Today, our beloved ash trees are nearing critically endangered status due to the in introduction of the emerald ash borer. It's an invasive species that has swept across the continent unrestrained. With the potential elimination of the ash tree, all tribes along the northern U.S. border could be facing the extinction of ash basketry, and in many ways, a bit of ourselves as we know it. Sweetgrass is another material tied to basketry in our ancient stories. Through development, we have lost many of our ancient gathering places. The few places of sweetgrass that still remain naturally are kept secret and are still traditionally maintained. Over time, we have been successful in developing ways to cultivate and maintain sweetgrass gardens to help ensure the survival of the plant and our ancient traditions. The white pine is our namesake, and the white pine needle is probably the most readily available and widely abundant basket material available today. We really pray and hope that that continues. With the environmental changes, the birch bark trees used for baskets and canoes struggle to grow large enough anymore for canoe use, and the mild winters prevent the bark from the smaller trees from becoming thick, which produces a thinner and weaker basket. The moose and porcupine are used to decorate birch bark baskets. The moose population in New Hampshire has been decimated by climate change and the exploding tick population. We're fearful of what's gonna come to them if people don't change their hunting habits. People are using Roundup and other pesticides to eliminate what they consider to be weeds. These plants supply many indigenous medicines and give us dyes for our baskets and clothes. Plants like goldenrod is used for yellow, pokeberry for a bright pink and black walnut for shades of browns. The toxins left behind by these weed killers contaminates the soil and insects which in turn poisons the birds and other wildlife. This cycle of destruction echoes our teachings of cause and effect or action and reaction and why great care is taken with every decision. We're affecting the ability for life and for future growth as we are behaving now. Because of our current questionable environmental policies and the continued introduction of invasive species to the continent, we're currently looking at various new natural materials including recycled materials that could be used to maintain these ancient traditional values, teachings, and art forms to ensure their continuation for the next generation. 
However, they will not be as creator intended. Thank you for those comments, uh, Denise. Um, I think that the examples you provide are, are very poignant in terms of how um, the connection between cultural sustainability and environmental sustainability are inseparable. And I, I appreciate the examples of that, that you point out. Uh, I've got a question here I'd like to ask James. And James, can you think of, or do you, do you feel like local non-Indigenous communities have already learned uh, from Indigenous inhabitants in this region with respect to techniques or approaches for sustainability? Yeah, um, you know, growing up in Newmarket and being related to the Chicks, they still have the uh, uh, wares down there and it's right in the Lamprey River. It's, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, my uncle Wilford and Adolf Doucette and managing that for, and being, uh, you know, really a traditional Swamscott, you know, noon market town and actually having that traditional fish, um, fishery wares there is, to me is just amazing. And it really shows the value of really new market was new market and a market open to the whole region um, with the tribal uh, between different tribal nations um, as well as um, European uh, settlers and really with a lot of the teachings is it, you know Paul alluded to it and Denise as well as really having regulations the proper way about respect of our brother and sister animals um, and there's a three R's that we go by respect reason and responsibility that we can show to each other to our brother sister animals to mother earth to grandma moon to the elements earth water fire air um, and these teachings, and I work with the fishing game on protecting endangered species and a scientist down in Massachusetts on a certain really critical endangered species and alluding to um, lessons that have come from it is in, in my family as well, lots about balance. And we all need balance in our lives. We need balance within our communities. We need balance within mother earth and um, is really, looking at, you know, family tradition is hunt, grow a garden or herbs, fish, right? And, uh, or raise chickens or you know, cattle. And my family does all that. People in my family are doing pretty much one of those things. And, and really be thankful, you know, and be thankful and giving thanks is a big thing as well is giving thanks for all that we have and the respect of that is gonna make that sustainable and the teachings. And one thing that I would really love to see is the New Hampshire Wabanaki people be recognized through the state and be able to really take things to another level. Cause you know, Dan, with a number of different tribal nations um, around Turtle Island, there's so many gifts that that everybody, we're all children of Mother Earth, that we can all benefit and learn from. And I really pray that, um, you know, within this region and the, with the people of the dawn, that that really comes to fruition and grows. That's a great point. 
I appreciate your comment about being thankful. This is certainly timely, uh, given the, the time of year for us here. Uh, your comments about balance and, and the challenges associated with that, especially in current uh, crises that we're, we're facing in, in healthcare and in, in the environment. So I appreciate your comments. Um, Kathleen, I wanna, I wanna uh, toss a question your way before we get into some of the questions from the audience uh, today. Is there uh, something in particular that you would hope uh, that everyone takes away from the discussion uh, that we've had here in the panel today? Yeah, there's quite a bit actually. If you look at the history of the indigenous people of this nation, we were always environmental stewards and we still are. Um, if we could rise above thinking about environmental stewardship as a partisan issue, that, that, would, be, um, that would be a wonderful thing. Because as I used to teach my students when I was a science teacher, we are all connected. And when I say that, I don't only mean um, we are all connected as human beings, although I do mean that, but we are all connected to this earth and to all the beings on this earth. We're connected to the, the earth herself. We're connected to the waters. And it's really important that we begin to recognize that and to lead a life that, that uh, nurtures and stewards this earth. Um, the other, uh, another point that I think I should make is that we are all downstream. You know, people used to say, oh, it'll wash away. I'll throw it in the river. It'll wash away. It'll be gone. It goes nowhere. It's still here. We have to be more cog uh, cognizant of pollution, of, um, of what we do to the earth. I, I would invite each of you to look in your garage. What do you have in your garage? Do you have Roundup sitting there on your shelf? Get rid of it. There are natural ways of dealing um, with things that we use chemicals and pesticides for. And it would be best if we all did this, it would solve a lot of problems. Um, ha ha what about things that damage the pollinators? Do you have, do you, do you sprinkle herbicides, pesticides um, on your lawn so that the bees are dying? Because if the bees dies, we're gonna, we're gonna as well. Um, it's so important. I would urge each of you to grow something, grow something that's indigenous to this area. You can readily Google to see where plants originated. And um, whether you have a garden of your own or not, um, you can grow something in a pot. So contribute to, to, the, to the plant nations here. That would be helpful. What about a monoculture lawn? You know, how much time do you spend digging up dandelions, trying to get rid of plantain, things that are actually medicines, you poison. I don't mean you individually, I mean people poison. So, so it, you know, go ahead and mow, but why don't you just leave the dandelions there? You can use them as medicines, but many animals do as well. Uh, learn about the plants that grow here. As other people have mentioned, um, many plants are medicines. You have to be really careful about that now though, because plant medicine is strong medicine. And if you mix it with pharmaceuticals, or if you take, take certain plant medicines when you have medical conditions, you can make yourself very, very sick. So you would need to learn and there is joy in learning about the beings that share this planet with us. Uh, and I would urge you to do that. Um, 
One thing, one thing that I would like to, to leave you with is there's a wonderful book um, that would help you to understand our view of nature. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a really profoundly significant book. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass. It was written by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's an indigenous uh, botanist, and it will help you understand a lot of things. So back to you, Dan. Thanks, Kathleen, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your comment about growing something. Some of us are better at growing things than others, but I suppose we can all give it a, give it a try, right? Um, I, I really appreciate all of the, the uh, thoughts that have been captured from, from all of you in the panel. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do at this point, um, we're right on time to turn the questions to those that have been submitted via the Q&A. So we've, I think we've got time to address uh, a handful of these and it looks like some of them are very kind of similar to each other. So I'm gonna kind of work my way through some of these <clears throat> and toss them out there and I'll maybe name a panelist who might, uh, might try to take a stab at these for us. So the first one, uh, comes from Sheila B. And the, the question is, will there be some comments made during the course? And I think, I think actually James touched on this about challenges that the Abenaki are facing in terms of being recognized by the state of New Hampshire as a tribe. Um, why doesn't New Hampshire recognize tribes uh, such as Vermont and Mass? Uh, what can be done to kind of help develop some momentum towards that? Maybe, Paul, would you be willing to take up that one? The current uh, situation is that most of New England states do not have a, uh, a uh, legislative process for recognizing uh, tribal groups. Uh, that includes Massachusetts, even though there may be state uh, recognized tribes that goes back to the colonial time period. Uh, but New Hampshire, because of its legislation, sheer size, it's, uh, it would be a very difficult thing to propose a legislative process just by the sheer size of our legislature. So in a nutshell, there is no clean way of doing it other than a federal acknowledgement process, which takes uh, decades and it takes uh, millions of dollars of research and millions of dollars of lobbying uh, expenses to try to promote. And that's why most of the tribes that do appear in a contemporary sense today uh, usually have funding from casino interests. And we are an anti-casino tribe, which uh, puts us behind the eight ball for raising those kinds of money needed to get go through the acknowledgement process, either state or federally. Hopefully that answers that. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I'm gonna toss a question out here that has several different axes to it, but it's, it's really, they're all focused on this week's holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday. And, and we have questions from Carolyn and uh, Zoe and uh, Larry Brickner Wood about, <clears throat> Uh, misconceptions about indigenous history and the Thanksgiving holiday. You know, how do we, maybe I'll put, pitch this one to James, if you don't mind. How do we uh, get to the point of having authentic conversations about uh, indi true indigenous history, the role of Thanksgiving, teaching uh, uh, truth in the schools? What, what are your perspectives on this? Seems like we have several uh, folks in the, in the uh, audience who have asked questions along those lines. You know, it's interesting with, you know, Thanksgiving and, and I have a lot of friends that come over um, that I've that are come over from other parts of the world. And they always tell me Thanksgiving is their favorite holiday because of the meaning of Thanksgiving and, and really what Thanksgiving means. 
Um, for me, as, as far as the education in the school systems that really need to change is the perception of, you know, how do you invite somebody to dinner when you have no food? That was always kind of a thing for me, right? I'm going to invite you over for dinner, Dan, but, you know, I got no food. Um, I think the, the concept of coming together as a community, um, as, as multiple cultures in community, um, needs to be really emphasized and really the 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 thankfulness of sharing and really a lot of what we talked about today of thanksgiving of honoring mother earth of being thankful for what she has provided us and the focus on thanksgiving as far as sustainability and in the gifts really that entail and i have some family i have some relatives that celebrate thanksgiving Traditionally, I have some that don't, so they protest at Thanksgiving because of these very reasons um, of the, the real false um, um, pilgrim, you know, he, he, you know, we're inviting you to dinner type thing when, when, when you got no food. So <laughs> I don't know if that helps and elaborates on it, but it's, it, it's what, what we really try to focus on in my family is the togetherness, the real meaning of giving thanks, but it, you know, and I know the Pouliots and a lot of people on this panel have really worked hard to do the proper education in the schools of, you know, how things really transpired. Yeah. Thanks, uh, James. I, I think this is especially important in the way we're reimagining what it means to gather too. And I, I know that, uh, you know, for indigenous families and communities uh, gathering in place and the idea of place is super important, and, and uh, that's especially challenging right now. And, um, it's something that we're all thinking about, I know, in the current uh, crisis. Um, I've got a question for you, Anne, that uh, we had several that came in about, <clears throat> about storytelling. And uh, from Brianna, uh, from uh, Smita, also from Gretchen and Jackie, um, basically questions about have you always been knowledgeable about your heritage or was there something that got you interested in learning more about that? Was storytelling one of the main ways that you learned native traditions and came to identify with them? And do you think that if with, there were more indigenous stories shared in school that this might help the, the next generation um, uh, adopt an, an idea, kind of an ideology of sustainability more so? Yes, I guess I'll start with that last Yes, I think when the stories are taught in the schools, when the stories are heard more, um, it will be part of that uh, education that will allow people around us to see that we are here and we're no longer needing to or seeking to hide in plain sight. For myself, um, I always knew about my indigenous heritage. I always knew that I, it was Abenaki. Um, great, my great grandpa's mother was born up uh, right by the where the Abenaki reserves are in, in uh, between Odnak and, and Molinac and in the 1800s. But I didn't know that 35 years ago. Um, you know, I, I just knew the stories that had come through my grandfather. And what was the life-changing moment for me was becoming a parent and trying to decide uh, what I wanted my children to uh, know about the world we live in and we live here in New England. You know, I have uh, myself European, mostly Northern European, uh, English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, 
little bit of German, one Swedish great-great-grandma. But here is where we live. I don't live in those places. I live here. And so these are the stories that I wanted to learn and, um, and the attitudes and the information that I wanted to pass on to my daughter. So over 35 years, um, maybe a little more now, my older daughter's a little bit older than that. Uh, I, I have actually um, started to internalize the stories that, that I've been learning from other tellers and through my own research. I've had the ability to seek out and listen to many storytellers over these years. And that's, I think, the first place to learn is to listen to many people and then you draw the wisdom from all of that. No one person has all of the knowledge and all of the stories. So it's important to not only have one source just as it is in academia, um, but listening to those stories, learning the stories is something that I took on as a parent, just as I decided to go back to school and finish my undergraduate and graduate degrees because I am the mother of daughters. You know, I think we have to decide for each one of us what our important issues are. And for me that being a mother was and still is all these years later and being a grandmother, a primary um, identification for myself. It's how I see myself as, a, as connected to family and um, as a passer on of knowledge. So the stories are more and more out there and available now than they were 35 or 40 years ago because I keep using the word safer and it's true. You know, since legislation was passed in, in the 1990s particularly, um, which made it no longer, for example, illegal for indigenous people to practice their own religions. Um, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. I mean, there was a lot of important legislation that happened in, in the 1990s. And prior to that, in the 1970s, the American Indian Movement started. And all those things are part of the story that has helped to bring uh, the Abenaki people out of hiding. And I will say this, honestly, the internet as well, because the stories are, are, we're able to actually talk to each other, you know, and connect with each other and come out of isolation. Um, and, and being able to connect on the internet has been very powerful too. And all of that is part of the larger story of the Abenaki people, but it comes back to the folk wisdom, to the, the, the content of the traditional stories as well. Um, so they're there, they can be found. Uh, if people want to reach out to me, they can, I think through this, or maybe just look on my website, just Google my name, you'll find it. And I'd be happy to point people in directions. I also have a, quite a bit of uh, information on one resource page about how to reach out to different groups um, to find out about the Abenaki more and about the Abenaki stories more. It sounds like uh, learning and, and sharing the stories can be every bit as transformative as listening to them as well. From, Absolutely. From yeah. Every you. time I tell a story, I learn more about the world. Yeah. Right. That's right. It's amazing the power of stories. Yeah. Denise, I've got a question for you that uh, comes from Isabel. It's about um, with, with monocropping as a major issue for environmental sustainability, how have native foodways, what oh, did our question go? How did uh, native foodways and access to traditional seeds changed and how can these practices be saved? How can we honor continued native gardening and sustainability methods, for example, at museums uh, and to help educate people? Um, we're trying to get uh, our indigenous foodways out of museums and actually get them in practice. 
All right. It's nice to sit and look at something behind glass, but it's even better to be able to participate and utilize the resource. Right. So we've moved beyond museums and um, we're actually have been um, started a program uh, as a tribe looking for farmers who have unused property that um, that they would be willing to donate uh, the cultivation use of to BIPOC communities so they can grow their their indigenous or um, traditional. You know, traditional gardens uh, that they're accustomed to having. Um, so we're trying to move beyond the museums and, and actually get it in practice. And, and through this practice, we'll be able to teach each other um, some of the ways that have been lost because each member remembers just a little bit. And so we have to lean on each other so we can get the whole story. Thank you. I appreciate your comments on it. You captured some really important points there. Uh, Kathleen, I've got a, a question for you here, and it's it basically an amalgamation from a whole lot of people who have asked questions about getting involved. Uh, so this would be Aniel and um, gosh, who else do we have here? Jacob and Ginger and Hannah uh, and May, which is really just kind of in a nutshell, what's your advice to young people that would like to educate themselves and broaden their knowledge about these topics related to sustainability what to grow, uh, environmental stewardship, if you're not necessarily able to, for example, do the UNH minor or take specific classes in a formal educational setting, other mechanisms to empower yourself uh, in terms of knowledge and advancement in these, on these topics. Absolutely. Um, as Denise mentioned, the internet is a wonderful thing. Um, you can find a lot of information on there. Um, always feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to speak with you about these things and um, partner with us. You know, we don't have to be divided. Different peoples do not have to be divided. And really right now it's critical that we partner together uh, to, to work on environmental issues. It, it's never been more critical in the history of living things. So um, you might also, if you want to learn more about plants, there are there are gardening classes. There are you could could do an herbalism apprenticeship. There are a lot of um, resources out there. There are gardening days. There are um, there are herbal days where you can go and and learn about something specifically that interests you. The only thing stopping you is yourself. You, it's there. The information is there. Reach out. Our hands are reached out um, as well. And let's do this together. We have to do this together. It's time, it's the time to do it. I think that's a great point that time is of the essence and there's really no real good reason to wait anymore. I think we have time for one more question and I'm gonna send this one to Denise and Paul kind of as our final uh, Q and A question. Uh, and this comes from, again, uh, it's a kind of an amalgamation from, from several people, Megan B, Lauren S, Linda, M and Hunter G. Um, are there ways that sustainable indigenous practices could be implemented on a larger scale for today's agricultural industries? And are there any organizations already working to bring back more indigenous perspectives or specific agricultural or sustainable forestry practices in New Hampshire or the Northeast today? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, we, we look at a lot of uh, indigenous communities to see what they're doing for sustainability. And uh, Dan, you're right in the heart of one of the areas. We, the Quapaw of Oklahoma have become totally food sovereign 
because they took the initiative as a tribal group, plus the benefit they had casino money to finance themselves. They took the US government out of their daily life. Uh, they became their own USDA food inspectors. They reclaimed their land. They were originally from the Ohio Valley. They were relocated like many tribes into Oklahoma. Uh, they had to reclaim the land itself from the ground up. And that's not a pun, but it, they had to actually you know, establish their, their soils. And then they had to establish their feedstock because they, were, they became uh, cattle uh, raisers and bison raisers. And what they found is the US government always kept them as a commodity industry and, and was not really concerned about the purity of the food. The Quapod did genetic studies of, of both strains, the cattle and the uh, bison, to make sure that there was no cross uh, uh, genetics going on. They also looked at all of their feedstock to make sure that it wasn't created by big agricultural conglomerates that put a lot of other things the feedstock. And from there, they decided they're going to grow their own fruits, vegetables, and other things, have their own pollinators. Uh, they became totally food sovereign. They threw the U.S. government out of their meat uh, processing so they could process their own meat and supply their entire community. So today they're a success story, food sovereign. And there's about 10 other nations, indigenous nations that are following the same pattern. Everybody on their reservation, um, everything from the children in the school to the elders in this, in this senior center, they're all being given food that's grown right on their own homelands. A remarkable uh, experiment in food sovereignty that's really worth noting. And, and every time I do a lecture like this, I always bring up as a great example of how indigenous people could teach the, the dominant society that you can be food sovereign. And that's our goal in New Hampshire. We only produce 10% of our food here. We think that can be greatly improved, improved by using organic farming techniques and to extend our season. And, um, and there's other things we can do as indigenous people using old seed stock and, and heirlooms, which are probably better suited for our climate today now. That's a great point. I think your, your um, mention of using uh, ecotype, regional ecotypes in, in uh, gardening and farming is something that is considered to be kind of new and cutting edge in, in uh, agri-science, but it's something that indigenous people have been doing kind of all along. And I appreciate your sharing the story of, of the Quapaw, Ogopaw people in Northeastern Oklahoma. I remember when I was a young undergrad and working on a minor in environmental science, I think it was, and I had an opportunity to work for my tribe, the Cherokee Nations Environmental Group. I spent a summer working with the Quapaw, and this is, uh, they're a small tribe. They're not large like, like the Cherokees or the Creeks or the Seminoles, but they had a goal in mind. It was what you described, which is to establish food sovereignty. And the part of the story that, um, that deserves to be uh, told here as well is they had inherited on their land some horrible environmental issues in the Superfund site and they had to kind of work their way through that on their on their path to to achieving food sovereignty and it's a great story and I appreciate you sharing that one with us. 